people are cooking more and more. And why is that? It's because people actually love the process of the creativity behind it, of the expression behind it. People are doing it for a very personal reason. We can give you technique and how-tos as opposed to step-by-step-by-step recipes with these chefs who have gone to culinary school, who have done all this technique work for you, then it'll be really powerful of an experience for the home consumer. Repeat customers are the heart and soul of just about every business. But when your product is something that you purchase maybe two or three times throughout your life, if it's a good one, how do you create a repeat experience that will sustain your company long-term? That was one of the questions that Chip Malt had to answer when he co-founded Made in Cookware, a digitally native kitchenware company that launched in 2017 and is disrupting the $17 billion cookware industry. And the solution he came up with, or solutions, I should say, are pretty good ones. One, produce the highest quality products possible. Two, have a deep understanding of the industry that you're entering into. Three, deliver an all-around great experience that goes way beyond your products. And four, keep scaling to bring more must-haves to market. This episode was such a fun one because we dove into the history of the cookware industry and went into the long-term partnerships they've set up in France. I mean, their knives are made from the great-great-great-granddaughter of a French knife maker who invented the modern chef knife in the middle of central France. I mean, how cool is that? I even asked him a bit about his best cooking tip that has now changed my life and the secret recipe that goes into all their cookware ingredients. So if you wanna find out the secrets and all the juicy tips, tune into this episode. Enjoy. Before we dive into the episode, I wanted to let you in on a little secret. Did you know that Mission has the number one e-commerce newsletter? It's amazing. It has really good news and insights and case studies that you will not find anywhere else. So go subscribe mission.org slash up next in commerce. All right, on to the show. Really quick, I want to say thank you, thank you to our awesome sponsor, Salesforce Commerce Cloud. And I'm going to allow them to give you the inside scoop into some of the findings from their most recent state of commerce report. Hi, this is John from Salesforce. Did you know that companies of all sizes and industries power their digital customer journeys with Commerce Cloud? Salesforce Commerce Cloud delivers B2B and B2C commerce, as well as order management around the globe. And with Commerce Cloud, you can engage with your customers anywhere and personalize interactions everywhere. Scale and innovate with ease and drive some serious growth for your business. And speaking of innovation, we recently surveyed nearly 1,400 commerce leaders and analyzed the consumer shopping and business buying behavior of more than 1 billion customers worldwide. And we uncovered emerging trends that will influence how companies can be successful and stay ahead in this ever-evolving landscape. To check out the trends we discovered, go to sfdc.co slash commerce insights. That's sfdc.co slash commerce insights, one word. Welcome back to Up Next in Commerce. I'm your host, Stephanie Postles, CEO at mission.org. Today on the show, we have Chip Malt, the co-founder and CEO at Mating Cookware. Chip, welcome to the show. Awesome. Thanks for having me, Stephanie. Yeah, I'm really excited to have you here. I might not be the biggest chef, but I feel like I'm still down to talk all things cookware and maybe you can like train me up on what I should be doing and I need all the help I can get. That's my caveat to start the show. Awesome. We're happy to do so. Yeah, I like that. So I want to hear... I, I want to dive into the background of Made in Cookware because I think you have a super interesting story where, correct me if I'm wrong, you started and co-founded the company with a childhood best friend, and you guys have a lot of history in the industry with your family and family's family. And I would love to kind of dive deep into all that background before we get into the actual company of like where it is today. 
Absolutely. Um, yeah, so we started the company or officially launched it in 2017. So we're just over three years old now, entering our fourth year. Um, but really the story, I mean, began a long time before that, as you mentioned. Um, my co-founder, Jake, um, Jake Kalik, he comes from a 100-year-old family uh, that has experience with cookware. So his great-grandfather in Boston, where we grew up, started a business that outfitted restaurants and hotels their kitchens with everything from walk-in refrigerators to knives to cookware to a lot of stuff that we're selling today. So, um, you know, he comes from almost 10 decades of experience in the cookware wow. space or his family does. Um, and then Jake and I grew up together. We, we actually went to preschool together and um, wow. we, were, we were in the yellow and blue room together. Um, and then we went to pre-kindergarten and went to a school that was um, the same all the way from pre-kindergarten through 12th grade when we left for college. So, you know, our history goes back 28 years and we're 33. So um, almost to the, to the beginning of when you can even start to remember. Um, and we've been best mm -hmm. friends for, ever since. And so um, it's been a pretty incredible journey. Like we've been able to mesh his background, um, his family's background, his family's history, kind of into our childhood friendship, into a business um, and have fun doing it. So it's been a pretty cool journey so far. Yeah. Were there ever points when you guys kind of like veered apart, came back together? And like, when did you know, or even think like, oh, we should do something together? Yeah, I mean, to be honest, and it's nice that he's not on this podcast because he can't defend himself, but I don't think growing up, I would ever start a business with him. Uh, he, he, uh, I, I know too much about you. One. Yeah, exactly. I was more of the studious one. I would say he would he would copy off me in high school if uh -huh. we had to um, simplify it. And and I also thought I would never be kind of in the space, in the cookware space as well. Um, that's his background. And it's been really cool. Um, I mean, to be honest, like the startup world and starting a business as you know, I feel like the public only gets to see the glamour side of things. It's, it's a lot of hard work. It's a lot of ups and downs for just as many amazing days and successful days you have. Um, you have a really tough day as well. Um, and so going through that with someone you're close with at, you know, at the end of the day, you can just have a beer and de-stress is a pretty incredible experience. Yeah. So when taking best practices and lessons from maybe like his family history and how they've been doing things, what did that feel like, you know, kind of taking this company and maybe bringing in new practices and new ideas. Was there any bit of like um, a struggle behind that where they're like, no, 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 we've done this for a hundred years. We know what we're doing. Like, come on, Chip, just follow the lead. No, we get that a lot. I mean, at some point or at some level, we are cutting out his family business. I mean, his family is a distributor. They take, you know, some of the incumbents we're competing with now, and then they sell them to restaurants and act as the middleman and, you know, e-commerce and direct consumer mm -hmm. in general is a cut out the middleman strategy. And so, now, his family's been nothing but supportive. Um, they're super happy. We're maintaining the history into something new and just evolving it into the way that the world is moving. And so they've been awesome. I mean, his family and his knowledge of just the product in the industry has been absolutely crucial in us starting a business. I mean, when we walk into a kitchen and we're talking to a Grand Ackett who you know, is one of the best chefs in the world, he's able to talk about BTUs of the burner that Grant's using in the oven and why it's better. And he's able to talk the talk. Mm -hmm. And it really gives us an air of authenticity and an air of just immediate warmth when we have, you know, the food in general is a very relationship driven business. It, it has a lot of credibility when we're approaching partners. Yeah. So how did you get, I mean, I saw that you're in like crazy restaurants, like really big ones, um, top chefs use you guys. How did you even get in the door of those people? Because to me, I think like you can be, you know, really smart around the product stuff and why you need it. Like you're talking about the BTUs of the burner and all this stuff. Like you can have that, but if you can't even get your foot in the door or get in front of those people, you're kind of like, well, eh, you can't really go anywhere. So how did you guys make those relationships and yeah, get in there? 
Yeah, I would love to tell you that, you know, we sat in a white uh, a boardroom and whiteboarded out the perfect strategy and absolutely nailed it off off the bat. But that was clearly not the case. And um, that's not how it played out. I mean, the way the company came up, came about and kind of taking a step back, like what we do is we sell kitchen goods. So knives, cookware, uh, multi-clad stainless steel, carbon steel frying pans, down to wine glasses and tabletop items and, and really anything to outfit a new kitchen you're walking into, like Made In will provide that. Our ethos to start was in our launching hypothesis was that food is so emotional. Like people are spending so much money going to a Whole Foods or a farmer's market and getting super excited about a marbled grass-fed steak from a local rancher who, you know, is 30 miles away and it's beautiful cut. And then they're coming home and they're cooking it on a frying pan. That's a hand-me-down that they couldn't even name the brand of and it's ruining that steak. And so there was this behavioral disconnect of, the beginning part of the process and all the care that went into it with the actual cooking at the end of the day, which was delivering the final product. Um, and so we wanted to make people care about their cookware in an emotional way as much as they did the ingredient they were grabbing at the farmer's market. And for us, that was meshing Jake's family history, that 100-year-old family history, with the craftsmanship approach of the manufacturers and partners that we work with. Our knives are made from the great, great, great granddaughter of a French knife maker who invented the modern chef knife in the middle of central France. This area is the birthplace of cutlery. Um, it has so much deep history. And, you know, you walk through and everything about this town is dedicated around knives. There are still the old factories with the old windmills that would power the old forges. And wow. um, it's just like pure and center, all knives. And what we wanted to do was make a product and go back to that kind of source and resource and tell that story so that when you pull the knife out to cut the steak that you just fell in love with, you also know that that, you know, all the craftsmanship and all the story that went into that knives. And so it was this approach of blending love and care on both sides, a product to ingredient. And so that was a launch approach. And, you know, we, we carry that ethos through all our product lines. You know, our, our bakeware we just launched is from a proprietary recipe that's over 200 year old. 200 years old from the center of France as well. And that's what carries through every single product we make that actually attracted all these partners. Um, so most stuff in our, in our industry comes off of abode overseas in Asia and um, is kind of nameless and faceless and, you know, has a name printed on it kind of all looks the same. And no one was putting this time and attention and care into the supply chain portion. And as soon as that happened, Tom Colicchio approached us and he said, I've been working in this industry for decades, waiting for a company like you guys to come along. I want to partner with you guys. And he invested in us. And from there, it was a snowball effect. I mean, Tom is just an incredible human being. Everyone respects him. Um, he was able to kind of be the first stamp of approval along with our supply chain story being the second stamp that um, started to attract a lot of amazing chefs from around the world to be yeah. part of our brand. And uh, I'd say like the last point on that, like, you know, these aren't traditional influencer or endorsement deals. And so every chef we work with, they're authentic customers of ours. They're buying for their restaurants. It's not a pay-to-play deal. Mm -hmm. um, this is like a real authentic relationship. That's awesome. Yeah, that, that's a theme I always hear. And I think even for our company as well, like that first customer is like the stamp of approval. Like once you get the one big whale, then you can just be like, well, look, so-and-so is using it and you can find their network. And um, yeah, once you get that first one, I think everything gets easier. How did you, how did Tom hear about you? Were you guys doing some marketing tactics to get in front of him? No, through the grapevine, um, we were approached Danny Myers Fund as an investment proposal. And they, was, we were too small. It was too early for them. I mean, they write two, $20, $30 million checks for growth stage businesses. And we had, hadn't even launched really yet. And so, um, you know, he introduced us. He's like, would you like to meet our friend, 
Tom Colicchio, um, he writes angel checks and would that be okay to make the intro? And obviously we were trying to play it cool. Uh-huh. We were like, yeah, I think we'd be okay with that. Uh, but obviously we were ecstatic and, and super excited. And you know, we emailed Tom and didn't hear back from him for months and we're like, all right, that clearly was, is not going to happen. And um, all of a sudden we got an email from him two months later out of the blue. That was just, Hey guys, landed back from filming Top Chef for two months. Like, so sorry for the delay. Can you meet in New York tomorrow? And I don't know if he thought we were in New York as well, but yeah. obviously we were, we were in Austin, Texas, and we were like, sure, and booked an immediate flight and more or less had a handshake deal um, to partner with him and get an investment from him that day. He was just a super awesome guy, super genuine, and believed in what we were doing, most importantly. That's amazing. So what did that initial startup look like? Like you have an infusion of cash, like what were your next steps? Was it already mapped out or were now you're like, whoa, this is like really getting us to that next level. We need to kind of change how we were thinking about it. I'd come from the apparel space, which um, I was working at a company called Grown, helping them with digital marketing. And if you were saying, hey, Chip, I need to go buy some stuff right now. I don't even know where to start. It's generally the refrain we hear. Um, and that was different from the apparel space. Our product is a performance-based product. It will fundamentally make the food you cook better tasting, mm-hmm. but how to do, deliver that in a way that makes sense to the normal consumer and it's not too chefy, especially when we have all the chefs behind us. You know, that was a, a huge learning process. Yeah, someone um, once gave me a really big cast iron skillet and I remember being like, thank you so much. Like, what do I do with this? How do I clean it? And she's like, Tom, you like do salt and this. And I'm like, oh my gosh, like, can I cut my egg in here? And I tried a couple of times yeah. and it just was burning. I'm like, okay, education is key around stuff like that. The one thing I was reading that I thought was really interesting too was your post-purchase engagement of basically using that as a training funnel because you were maybe having people come in and complaining because they didn't really know how to use the cookware. And so you use that as a channel to start training them right after they purchased. And maybe we're checking in on like the shipping and trying to see where their product was that instead you would guide them to the website to train them. And I'd love to kind of hear how you thought about that. And do you still do that today? Yeah, I think, I mean, we're very lucky in the sense that we have some of the best chefs in the world that are, again, our authentic partners and using our cookware. And so, you know, we thought a lot about, and we sat back and, you know, we're lucky enough that because we work with these people, we were able to go into a restaurant and the chefs generally come out and explain exactly how they made the dish they're serving us. And, you know, this like very personal experience that heightens the entire enjoyment of going to that restaurant. And, you know, so we're sitting there and like, we actually kind of have a duty as a company. We have this entire group of chef partners and this entire group of home consumers to be the bridge between those. So everyone can else, everyone else can have that experience, right. And, and heighten their enjoyment of the use of the products. And so, you know, we work with these chefs, um, you know, Grant Ackett's kind of just taught us how to make an omelet. And, you know, he's known for this like crazy molecular gastronomy, but actually Grant Ackett's grew up cooking in his parents' diner, making mm-hmm. eggs. And, you know, now he can do it the best in the world. And so, you know, we have a unique, we talk a lot about what can made and do that no one else can. And we have this two-sided relationship that no one else does. Um, and so how can we bridge that gap between the consumer and the chef in a way that really values and adds value to the consumer's process? And to us, that's education. So, you know, you buy a carbon steel frying pan or you buy a piece of bakeware, you know, Nancy Silverton, the best baker in the world is going to give you a recipe to enjoy that, that product. If you buy carbon steel, you know, as you said, carbon steel to us is a better cast iron, mm-hmm. but there's a learning curve. The chef from Jim Z in New York is going to teach you how to season it, teaching you how to, like, what the hell that salt thing that the person was talking about, what that is and how to use it. Yeah. Um, and that's coming from a real expert in the space. Oh, that's, that's a really 
unique and interesting strategy. I mean, you're kind of using the chefs as your influencers to train. And I feel like a lot of these chefs know how to speak in a language that'll connect with me. So you don't really have to be like, wait, 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 you're going to, you know, intense here. Like, let's dumb it down a bit. It seems like a lot of the best chefs have learned how to be the, um, what's that one? Uh, like the chef Ramsey's of the world, or there's another one I follow that's really good too on Instagram. Anyways, he does things in a way where I'm like, I can do that. Like, and it's just like, it's only five steps. It looks beautiful, but here's like the, you know, two things that'll really take it to the next level. Yeah. And Tom Cocchio and my co-founder, Jake, I mean, they both have the same philosophy, which is that you really get to enjoy cooking once you can just do the fundamentals. Like Mm -hmm. as soon as you break free of the recipe, you can actually start to enjoy the creative process for it. And we talk about that a lot too, right? It's like, it's never been easier to order Uber Eats and have any meal you want delivered to your door within 40 minutes at a pretty good price, but people are cooking more and more. And why is that? It's because people actually love the process of the creativity behind it, of the expression behind it, of just like the sense of accomplishment or people do it to de-stress or they're doing it for a specific diet. Like there's people are doing it for a very personal reason. Um, And if we can give them the fundamentals of, Hey, this is just the technique of how to sear a steak. And so we've taken that to heart as well. If we can give you technique, and how-tos as opposed to step-by-step-by-step recipes with these chefs who have gone to culinary school, who have done all this technique work for you, then mm-hmm. um, it'll be really powerful of an experience for the home consumer. What are a few of like the top maybe cooking tips or tricks where you're like, once I learned this one thing, it changed my whole worldview on cooking? Yeah, definitely heat control. You know, I think that is where most home cooks get in trouble. Um, you talked a lot about just like burning your eggs. It's not a hard concept, but, you know, there's everything flying around the internet of you need high heat to sear. And that's just not true. And, you know, low and slow is the best way to cook, et cetera. Like really becomes down to your personal preference and style. Um, you can sear a steak on low heat if you just do it correctly, right? And, and give it its proper time and you can still have the exact reaction you want. Um, Tom Colicchio is a low and slow guy and Grant Ackett's, you know, tends to cook on higher heat. Like, mm-hmm. you know, everyone is doing it in their own way. For me... And even in my personal journey, like understanding heat control and learning it correctly was the the biggest unlock because that applies to the most amount of most amount of dishes that you cook. Mm-hmm. I think a good example of that is you know Tom Clicky talks a lot about listening to your to your meal, and so you know you have a pan and you heat it up, no oil because most people heat it with oil and burn the oil on and have a lot of dishes to do. So you mm-hmm. you know put a stainless clad piece of piece of cooker on the burner, heat it up to temperature, dump in uh, cold oil, let that heat up quick, quickly. And then put on a cold steak. Like, what is that cold steak going to do? It's going to drop the temperature in the pan. And so at that point, you need to add more heat into the pan mm-hmm. to get that sear. But once everything gets up to rise, like if you leave that high heat on, it's going to overcook everything and burn that oil again. So then lowering it down. Everything on that is done to just like paying attention to heat control. There's a stereotype of the average American worker whose life goes something like this. Go to work, come home, consume some kind of entertainment, go to sleep, lather, rinse, repeat. If you're listening to this ad, then I know that that life does not resonate with you. For the truly disruptive business leader, work doesn't stay at the office and unwinding doesn't mean watching TV at night every single night. This is why we've created Mission Daily, a podcast that discusses the trends, habits, and ideas that thoughtful business people are contemplating every day. From quirky business opportunities to interesting investment ideas to the latest research in health and exercise, and alternative medicine, and maybe even plant medicine. Who knows where we're going to go, but Mission Daily covers it all. We're releasing new episodes every weekday. So join me, Stephanie Postles, and my co-host, Albert Chow, as we discuss the subjects, thoughts, and trends that business leaders think about, 
but don't talk about. Publicly, that is. Break the status quo. Tune into Mission Daily wherever you listen to your podcasts. See you there. Is there any pushback that you guys have felt? I mean, you're in an industry that to me kind of feels like an older one where people are like, oh, I've always used like non-stick and it's fine. Now it does feel like things are changing where, you know, people are like, these pans are toxic. There's, you know, they're not the best for the environment. There's a lot of things that you should think about. What kind of education around just using the products, but like, what else are you encountering right now when you're, you know, trying to push into this industry? Yeah, I mean, people do have a preference towards non-stick. It's the biggest objective business market to attack. And I think that's why you get the most amount of entrance into the non-stick space. Mm -hmm. It's also the most just like wild west of marketing as well, which we Mm -hmm. try and stay out of. The big push right now is quote unquote ceramic. It's not actually ceramic. It's a sole gel coating that looks like ceramic. And so, you know, the green pans of the world a decade ago dubbed it ceramic because it sounded nicer and sounded more premium, but really it's a sole gel. And so it created this like decade-long fear-monger marketing tactic that a lot of companies have latched onto over the decades. And now Green Pan's actually in a class action lawsuit oh. uh, about all their fa- face claims. And so- Wow. I used to have a Green Pan and I threw it away because I'm like, I don't think this is good to cook on. And the problem with those two is, I mean, Soul Gel and quote-unquote ceramic, which is how the normal person listening to this would hear it as, it by definition, every time it's called a self-sacrificing surface, every time you use it, it removes some surface. And so it lasts for- it scores four out of 10 on the durability score. And like just in terms of like business, we're making performance-based tools. We're not making a marketing gimmick company. And our kind of like gold standard is, would this hold up in a commercial kitchen? And would Grant Ackett's or Tom Clicchio or Mashama Bailey, like would they want to use this piece of cookware in their restaurant? And you will never see a ceramic pan, mm-hmm. a green pan pan in a kitchen because that would last one week in a commercial kitchen. Yeah. Um, so then they're making all these claims about you know better for you, better for the environment. If that thing's ending up in a landfill a week later, two weeks later, a month later, whatever it is, it's up to you to determine if that's actually better for the environment. Um, yeah, exactly. And and so we're, we're not like in that game. We don't play in that game. Um, mm-hmm. We're here to make great tools that the best chefs in the world and the best home cooks and people who love to cook can use. So what kind of marketing are you guys finding most effective right now? When, like you said, a lot of the other cookware brands are maybe using the fear mongering and um, just making claims that maybe aren't always most accurate. Like what are you guys finding in success, finding success in? Yeah. So we love to tell the manufacturing story and, and the craftsmanship story. So just talking a lot about bakeware right now, because we just launched it on April 8th and, you know, we went out to the factory in France and watched it, it goes through 50 people's hands who touch who touch and inspect this and have been doing it for 30 or 40 years. And it's such a beautiful process and it's pouring this clay um, and porcelain that, you know, is proprietary to them. And, you know, I think there's one person who actually only knows the, the, um, the recipe and, you know, we're sitting there being like, this seems like a single point of failure as a business yeah. owner. Like you should make sure this person is something like put it on Google drive with a <laughs> password protector or something. I don't know. Um, but I mean, it's such an intimate, unique process and our customers love to see that. And, and the customer that appreciates that is our customer. And, you know, these beautiful, like everything we make in the bakery space is hand painted. And so we have these white porcelain with blue rims and red rims and, you know, each, every single piece is literally hand painted by a brush. And so we want, you know, there's so much, that's just so different than you know, a lot of our competitors and what they do or, you know, the coolness comes from 
applying some coating that's you know powder blue or something like that it's just totally different mm-hmm. um and so we want to express that and for us on the marketing side like showing that is, is really beneficial because one it you know is all the work we're doing like scaling and working with these artisans and craftsmen is tough it's tough business but mm-hmm. also you know really rewarding and our customers see how much care and attention and time goes into each one of their pieces yeah, that's great. How do you, I mean, when I think about it, it feels very exclusive. Like you're, you have direct access to the person doing this and know the recipe. Like how do you kind of put a moat around that? So maybe other brands can't just come in and be like, oh, we know this one style of copper cookware, which is beautiful. I was looking at that. I'm like, oh, that would match my one Moscow mule I have mug. But like, how do you kind of put a moat around it to make sure the other brands don't just come in and steal your one single person who has the recipe? Yeah, yeah. This goes back to Jake's family history and being so authentic in the space. I mean, he was working with a lot of people who are friends of friends who connected us to the right people. And really, the only reason why we got a foot in the door was because of being in the space for 100 years. And, um, you know, most of our or all of our competitors do not have any family history or any reason to be in it mm-hmm. other than seeing a white space in a market to go attack kind of thing. And so that's, I mean, we don't talk too much about moats. Like, to be honest, like we have a very familiar relationship with all of our manufacturers, craftsmanship partners and everything, um, you know, go out, spend multiple weeks. Our knife manufacturer told us she loved us and felt like we were her children and kids Aww. and sons after, at the end of it. So like, um, you know, these are real relationships and it's less about, Hey, can we sign an exclusive for 10 years to lock out competitors and more, how can we treat um, them like family? How can they treat us like family? And um, yeah. So they wouldn't want to do exactly what you're talking about. Um, yeah. we have a, how do you go about doing that? Like, how do you, you know, instill that trust and relationship? And I mean, other than just being a nice, friendly person, which obviously you are, like, <laughs> what else do you do? So they really kind of feel that relationship and you're like, yep, I'm not even worried about it because we got that. Yeah. Um, I mean, some of them have invested in us. Um, some of them have, like, we internally, we have a mantra of hospitality first, and that goes towards everything from treating every customer who walks through our door, whether they spent or walks through our website door. Uh, I mean, whether they spent $19 or $900, uh, you know, like we are a three Michelin star restaurant. So what can we do to make you feel better, to enjoy the experience better, to, if you're having a problem, fix it. Um, you know, you need like all that stuff. And that, go, that extends from suppliers, vendors, um, and manufacturing partners as well. So what does that mean? I mean, it's treating them fairly on terms, it's treating them fairly on, um, our business growth and practices and being an open book for them and sharing information and in negotiations, dealing with them in a friendly manner. For us, that is the name of the game because it takes us out of a, you know, let's solve for the six month term and I'll be around for two decades, three decades forever. Um, we need to make sure that we're treating people correctly. Yeah, I love that. So when thinking about your customer, like you said, they can come in and buy, you know, $1,200 cookware set and it's going to last a long time. I mean, it's not something where it's like, you'll be back in a month. I'll see you when you need, you know, a replacement. How do you think about garnering that, you know, passionate customer base where it's like you, you know, have, have a good like LTV on them. You're like, they're going to be around for 10 years because I've seen that you also are able to get wait lists of like 10,000 plus people who sign up for new products that you're launching. So I want to kind of hear how you think about that and keep your customer engaged, even if the, you know, life cycle of when they need a new product might be a long time from when they buy their first one. Yeah. Um, so we've been fortunate enough to have really strong cohort and repeat customer behavior. And so our early, you know, we're only three years old at this point, our earliest cohorts have repeated over kind of blended average over hundred percent. So, you know, industry average is 20%. Yeah. Uh, so you five X industry average. And it's again, in a product category that, as you mentioned, you know, our product 
should last you your entire life. Um, and so like, you know, it's something we had to solve for and think about. Um, our first belief is that product quality is the biggest driver of longevity and happiness and cohort behavior. So if your product stinks and you're the best marketer in the world, you know, that's a short-term game. What really, you can have actually a subpar experience with an amazing product and that's actually the better trade. Again, we try to solve for a great experience with a great product, but if we have only one chip to put it in, we would always put it into the product category because we believe that is what drives behavior. And so when we're going out and one of our early investors um, and main investors had a really great point, which was, you don't know how someone's going to find you. It could be a blog article about some tail skier that you like just launched because, you know, a cutting board, like, mm-hmm. you know, it's not a course to you, but like, if that is your, their first experience with made in, they are going to believe that everything else is like that mm-hmm. uh, cutting board. Right. And so everything you launch needs to be a great experience. If that is their first product they've ever bought. So don't launch tail skews that aren't up to the quality standards that you want, that don't have the manufacturing and craftsmanship story that you want, that don't have a good unboxing experience. You know, we've taken that to heart because I think you see a lot of e-commerce companies just launch a whole bunch of stuff really mm-hmm. quickly yeah. without that thought and intention behind it. And again, you don't know how people are going to find you. Like, you know, you're going to Parachute Home and you need a candle. If that candle doesn't come in an amazing box that represents the Parachute Home brand well, then you're probably not going to come back and buy their sheets. And so, you know, when we think about a product line and, and our offerings and cohort behavior and LTV to answer your question, like it all starts with product experience and product quality. And then again, that hospitality first met mantra, you know, treating our customers correctly, you know, giving them customer service if they need it and that will drive long-term behavior. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's great. Cause I think, like you said, a lot of brands do think about, you know, what are the loss leaders that you can put out there and just kind of get people in the door or the quick hits. And like you said, I mean, I've bought many things for the first time, starting off with smaller price points, just to see, you know, dabble in it a bit, see what it's like. And then being like, nope, you know, I'm so glad I didn't buy that expensive $100 item because I just bought a bracelet for $10 and it was horrible. And yes, it was $10, but I'm still mad about it. Yeah. When I was at the apparel company and I was running um, analytics for them, we did a lot of basket card analysis on which product, taking everyone's first cart and dicing out the SKUs that made up that first cart and then which of those SKUs led to the second carts. And we kind of found an interesting mantra, which we've taken to heart, which was the lowest price point product of the most premium category was included in the most baskets that drove the highest repeat. And to your point exactly on that, it was people who were trying to figure out, hey, is this material like worth this extra amount of money I'm about to spend on it? I'm going to test that out by the cheapest one in that category. And so, you know, it was kind of that product that we hadn't spent a lot of time and attention on. And all of a sudden we're like, wow, this actually is the most important product of our entire company because it's everyone's gateway and it's showing the material, but it's not a tough uh, price point to hit on mm-hmm. a first basket. And if we can show well on this, on this first basket with this product, then they'll be great customers over the long term. And I think exactly what you mentioned is interesting. That's a good one. I mean, it makes you think about maybe adjusting margins on that first, you know, lower priced item, give it higher quality, lower your margins if you need to, to keep that price lower, get them in the door. And then, you know, they'll probably go up from there when they have like a really good experience with that cheaper item. I don't know if a lot of brands do that though. So when developing new product lines, I mean, you're talking about the quality piece of it, but like how quickly can you guys develop products or are you more, you know, slow paced? Like we just want to make sure it's perfect and it could take us a year to come up with a new product line because we're, you know, working with these artisans in France or knife makers or whatever you're doing. Yeah, it's been a mixture of both. I mean, we've had products that came together very quickly and kind of was a match made in heaven with the craftsmen. 
um, who, you know, we reached out to and it just like got the market in the way we wanted very quickly. And we've had products that we had a product cast iron product that we were trying to launch in 2019 that, you know, got to the one yard line and we had spent a year and a half on it. And, you know, we invested $50,000 of tooling and a ton of research and time and effort and all this stuff. And it just wasn't up to the quality that we felt represented the brand. And we scrapped the pro- that project at the one yard line. And now it's you know been a three-year project. I'd say it's very variable. We are very aware that once we put that product out, it reflects on the rest of the products. And so if we put out a bad line and doesn't carry the same quality and, and care and attention that the rest of our line does, it could reflect them. Are they doing everything else half-assed as well? Mm-hmm. Um, so I would say it's been a mixture. Yeah. How do you ensure that you're going to have enough inventory, especially when it's being handcrafted? I mean, we've had quite a few people on the show who have kind of similar stories around, like we had a um, yellow leaf hammocks on in the early days and the women in the villages there were the ones making the hammocks. And of course that can kind of cause, you know, maybe sometimes supply issues. And like, how do you even plan for that when it's like, well, this is one person's recipe and there's 50 people who are touching this product to get it out there. And maybe Joe got sick. So there goes his recipe for a week. Like we don't know how to create it anymore. Like how do you even plan when it's so, yeah, custom, I guess. Yeah. I mean, to be honest, that's one been one of the biggest challenges of this business is our unique moat and value prop and everything is also the biggest challenge of the business. And um, I think those naturally go hand in hand together, but you, you hit it, the nail on the head. I mean, it's about finding these craftsmen and make these amazing products and they've never seen a company scale five X year over year. They've never seen a company like, mm-hmm. you know, go this fast and attack the market in this way. And so it's about, again, going back to being good partners with them, sharing multi-year forecasts, helping them invest in new tooling and new um, lines and, and things like that and working with them directly. It's, it's a huge, huge challenge. But, you know, we've seen companies who get to this point and then take it and move everything to an automation facility and kind of hurt everything that they built in the first place. And so we're not doing that. It's more about uh, being great partners and, and figuring out the challenges with those partners. Cool. So when it comes to like an e-commerce perspective, I liked your example earlier about, you know, how to think about certain metrics and what you used to analyze. What are some other things maybe you pulled in from your past marketing experience into this business where you're like, we've always relied on these principles, or I always look at these metrics every day to make sure everything's going okay. Yeah. We look at, um, star ratings by product line. Um, you know, those are obviously very important for us. It's, you know, the, what is the benefit of e-commerce? I mean, early days, it was the cut out, cut out the middleman story that's kind of gone away. And now it's okay. Direct relationship with our customer one-to-one mm-hmm. management of that relationship. And we believe more of that mantra, right? And we always say at the end of the day, when you buy something from William Sonoma and you walk out of that store, you're never going to hear from that salesperson ever again. Your relationship with William Sonoma and that salesperson who just spent half hour with you is over. Mm-hmm. For us, it always begins at the time of purchase. They bought from us. We now have a direct line to them. We can provide them content. We can provide them customer service. Like that, Our relationship is just beginning. And a lot of that goes into product reviews. A lot of that goes into monitoring um, return rates and how many customers exchange or return products. And you know, for us, that's a product proxy for product quality. And then cohort behavior is a huge one as well. And you know, those three together kind of give us an idea of how the product into customers viewing the company um, kind of full circle is trending. And those are probably the three we focused on most. Yeah. What are some of the behaviors that you're looking for when you say that cohort behavior is one of the biggest ones? Like, what are you guys looking for and how would you adjust it if it's not going the way that you want? Yeah. I mean, so 
cohort behavior, you know, you're looking for trends kind of up and to the right and home space. When we launched in the home space, people are always like, what we tend to see in this space is a diminishing marginal curve on cohort behavior. So after they've kind of bought all the things from you, then they don't ever come back again. And so you see, you know, cohort behavior one to six months, you know, kinking up to the right and then six to 12, a little bit less and then flat from 12 on or whatever it is. Right. And so mm-hmm. we wanted to make sure that we didn't follow that trend because that meant, all right, we no, no longer have a relationship after 12 months, just out of, out of an example um, with that customer. And so what can we do to maintain that customer within our, our relationship? And what can we do to provide value to them? Um, whether that's content and recipes and how to use things better, whether that's new products. Um, so again, we've launched, you know, we started with just stainless cloth cookware. We've launched carbon steel cookware, knives, uh, wine glasses, plates, silverware, copper, bakeware, all from these like amazing facilities and stories. Um, mm-hmm. You know, if we can treat them right in the beginning, then obviously they'll continue to um, support us throughout that journey. Yeah. What's some of the most engaging content? Is it the educational stuff? Is it the stories around the artisans making the product? Like what really pulls people in and then keeps them coming? Not just like a one-off hit of like, oh, that was heartwarming. Like I like that. And then you don't you know, see them anymore. What keeps them there long-term? Definitely the manufacturing craftsmanship stories. Mm-hmm. Um, those get the highest feedback and results from us. I mean, to your point on uh, inventory being an issue for companies like ours, like have that deep a portion of it and then have that portion go through a pandemic where demand is increasing and um, manufacturers are closed um, in Europe for months because of COVID outbreaks. Like it, it creates a tough dynamic. And, and around those stories, we generally heard the refrain of, I don't care when this stuff comes to me, just make it in the right way. And I think what these videos and this content does is show you that we are making it in the right way. You know, it's not like we're delivering you know, medication that needs to be, if you don't have your oval baker on Monday, like you're not going to be too upset yeah. about it. Like obviously we're striving for best in class delivery and fulfillment and have a great team who does so, but you know, we're not delivering life needed items. We are delivering craft products that are going to last you a lifetime. And if that takes an extra week, like by showing people that, that the care and attention that goes into it, they generally have that refrain of, you know, do it the yeah. right way and, and get it to me when you can. Yep. Yep. I definitely feel that. How do you feel about being shown up in marketplaces or Amazon? Or, I mean, I know there's a couple like artisan marketplaces where they highlight some of the best products. What are your thoughts on, you know, I mean, to me, letting someone else tell your story or even on Amazon, you can only tell it in a certain way. How are you guys approaching that? Yeah. Amazon's interesting because I think that's shift the mentality on Amazon has shifted a bunch over the last five years. The e-commerce space in general, five years ago, I think would have said, no way. Amazon dilutes my brand. Amazon doesn't let me tell my story. It's going to cannibalize all the marketing efforts I'm doing over here. Mm-hmm. I think you're largely seeing a shift away from that mentality and brands racing towards um, displaying on Amazon. I don't think it means Amazon is still doing a great job of letting brands tell their story. To me, it's still a search engine. And you know, people tend to not get to the brand page ever. So I don't think it's, it's necessarily a uh, an Amazon win and that they're helping perpetuate all this effort and, and people are growing these brands to get scale and need to find that incremental sales and where else to go, but, you know, wholesale on Amazon. So Amazon has been interesting. I mean, we're not on Amazon. Almost hundred percent of our sales come through our own.com. So we're not really on marketplaces either. Mm-hmm. In general, we have a kind of anti view on all of those. Um, you know, I'm not saying that will be forever. Like again, each channel has diminishing returns at some sort of scale. Um, fortunately, we're not at that point, but yeah, we're, we tend to like to tell our own stories and, and craft the message and own the relationship and provide the value to the customer. So 
what's on the radar for you guys for the next couple of years? Where are you headed? What are you hoping to do in maybe like one to two years? Yeah. I mean, so we're at the point and when we launched this, we wanted to quote unquote own the kitchen. And I realize that's kind of an overused cheesy phrase and hope all the listeners didn't just roll their eyeballs. Um, I swear. I did. We're, we're, <laughs> own <laughs> it, Chip. They're going to own it, everyone. Uh, Come on. Exactly. But I mean, for us, like, you know, why now everything comes down to like the why and, you know, it's not just to sell more things. It's okay. People like the home, our kitchen is part of the home and people like aesthetic congruency within their home. And so it doesn't make sense to have a different bakeware company versus different knives versus different cookware and pull those all out. And now you're serving them all on a table to a dinner party and they all look different. And it's you know not a reflection of what you're trying to do for your home, which again, is very personal to you. And so um, with the launch of Bakeware, we're actually at the point right now where if you're moving into a new home, you're outfitting this place, you can buy almost every main vertical you need off of madeincookware.com. Mm-hmm. And it can all show up in one box and it can look the same and it can feel like it's part of the same system. You don't have to go research, do I want you know all cloud versus made in cookware? Like you don't have to do 500 different pieces of research. It's a seamless process for you to do so. And so that was kind of our main brand goal. Um, and we got there a little bit quicker than we thought we would um, with the launch of Bakeware now. And and so we're super excited about this being the first year where you know you can literally pull out a butcher block and cut a knife and prep your food and then cook it on made in and then serve it on a made in dish and you know serve it with wine and all that stuff and never touch anything but made in, which is pretty cool. That's cool. Well, let's move over to the lightning round. The lightning round is brought to you by Salesforce Commerce Cloud. This is where I ask a question and you have a minute or less to answer. Are you ready, Chip? Yes. All right. So I'd say you're probably an adventurous guy from what I read about you. What's one thing that you would never do? One thing I would never do. Good question. Um, as adventurous as I am, I'm not a huge water lover in terms of I do scuba dive, but I would never kite surf. No kite surfing? Oh, yeah. okay. But don't you fly planes? Yes. I like, I'd rather go up than down and climb mountains. I would. Okay. Okay. What's, um, what's a crazy story from flying a plane? You're like, I almost died this one time, but here I am. Yeah, my 14th hour, so about a third of the way through the private pilot's license, we had an engine out failure. We were out right outside DC, and we were descending beneath the DCA airspace, the Reagan airspace, um, to stay out of it. And it was with my instructor. It was my first, it's the first time in the training process that you go and land at a separate airport and come back. The first 10 to 12 hours are just all at your local home base airport doing takeoffs and landings and this and that. Um, and so we had just crossed the Potomac. He asked me to descend below the airspace, pulled back the throttle, and the engine just quit. And he said, yeah, give it more gas. Like, don't, don't throttle back that much. And it didn't kick back in. And we declared an emergency to make a long story short. When you declare an emergency, they give you, this is the Reagan now, they give you a dedicated person mm-hmm. to help monitor your situation. And he told us, okay, there's an airport two miles to your left. Can you make it? No, we declared a mayday situation. It had just snowed two feet in the, the D.C. area at that time, which was pretty rare and lucky for us, um, and ended up crashing in a snowbank in someone's backyard. Oh, my gosh. And I this... heard about this. I lived in D.C. Did you? I the, heard uh, about it. Yeah. This lady, it was probably 9 a.m. maybe, um, this lady came out in her robe with a coffee cup and just was so confused that there was a plane in her backyard. And we were sitting there, like, kind of dancing I... because, like... <laughs> We made yeah, it. Yeah, like we did this. Like we oh were safe. Gosh. It was definitely one of the crazier experiences in my life. Wow. What year was that? 2009 or 10. Okay. Yeah. Cause I'm like, 
there was this, I remember when I was in, I lived in Potomac area and I remember hearing about this and I don't know if it was you or not, but I remember a plane landing in someone's backyard <laughs> and it was like a hole in the newspaper for like a week. So maybe it was you. That's cool. So you've done four of the seven summits. Which one's been your favorite and why? Uh, Denali, Alaska was by far the most wild experience. That's the only one that's totally unassisted. Um, no porters, no mules, no anything. Um, you take a plane that lands on a glacier with your backpack and a sled, and they say see you in 14 to 21 days. It was also the toughest. I mean, that is 120-pound packs over 14 to 20 days. We got stuck. So we actually were making amazing, amazing time. We got up to the 14,000 foot camp. The mountain's about 21,000. So it's your last major camp before doing the ascent. And about 10 days of negative 40 degree weather came in. And so we were stuck there. And it was kind of a weird experience because the days were sunny and nice, but it was absolutely freezing. And anyone who left the camp, 100% of them got frostbite and had to be evacuated. And so we sat there. We were kind of running out of food. If we got to the last day of food and things opened back up, then we did a rapid ascent and summited on kind of the last day um, we were able to. But I mean, you're out there in the wilderness. It's absolutely stunning and beautiful. You're kind of with yourself. For, yeah. It's, a, it's a quite a different experience than some of the others, which are a lot of tour groups, a lot of assistance, a lot quicker. So it was, it was a wild experience. That's cool. I mean, below 40. Wow. No thanks. And I, funny story is the kid who I showed a tent with, Chad, he was a friend from earlier, but he was working at Walmart e-commerce at the time. I was, we actually received our first investment uh, via satellite phone on that climb for Made In. Wow. And he was like, what is that? And then two years later, he joined us as our head of logistics. So, oh, that's cool. A lot that's of things came story. from that journey. Yeah. Man, so many things all coming together. Cool. What's yeah. one thing that you don't understand that you wish you did? All this stuff that's happening with physics right now and how molecules can go through walls and okay how all that stuff i don't know it seems very cool and i wish i got it and i've had a lot of conversations around it every time i feel like i'm high or something i don't quite get it but other people seem to get it and i wish i did so i haven't even really heard about this or maybe i just don't know what i'm even like what this even is so i guess i'm in that same camp but i don't understand it and now i'm gonna start looking into that all right and the last thing what one thing will have the biggest impact on e-commerce in the next year Probably the mass move to 5G. You know, everyone is, I would say, still in the camp of, you know, mobile as the first touch point and then convert on desktop or desktop conversion rates and AOV are still trouncing that of mobile. Mm -hmm. Um, Development still is mobile second in most cases. Um, And even though people have been pounding the table about mobile mobile first uh, development for the last decade, you know, I think obviously as the more widespread 5G um, world gets out there, the focus on mobile maybe finally we'll get through to people that that's Mm -hmm. the most important medium of e-commerce. Yep. Cool. Well, thanks so much for joining the show. It's been fun learning about the world of cookware and seeing where you guys are headed. That's yeah. Amazing. Where can people find out more about you and made in cookware? Yeah. Our, everything is sold through made in cookware.com M A D E I N cookware.com. And everything is also sold a la carte if you just need to fill around an existing group of cookware. So we're excited and we have a full team ready to help you out if you have any issues as well. Amazing. Thanks so much, Chip. Cool. Thank you for having me on. Hey, everyone. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, you'll probably also love our e-commerce newsletter. 
You get it delivered straight to your inbox every week. Sign up at mission.org slash upnextincommerce. Up Next in Commerce is brought to you by Salesforce Commerce Cloud and created by the team at mission.org. Subscribe now at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts.